to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows and more information by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And you can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook. Please come and engage with us there. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Christopher Miller. He is a Jane professor and vegan activist, and we're going to talk about the intersection between the Jane religion and veganism and how that is really growing stronger on both sides, vegans being interested and kind of drawn to the concepts of Jane philosophy, like Ahimsa, and Jane's and Jane institutions being very open to veganism. So we're going to talk all about that. So just to give a brief overview of what Jain Dharma is, Jainism is one of the three main Dharma traditions originating from India. Hinduism and Buddhism are the more familiar religions, and Jainism is the other. These three traditions have, have a lot of similarities, but some very important differences. And the thing that stands out about Jain Dharma is their unwavering and central focus of ahimsa. And ahimsa is a Sanskrit word. It translates as nonviolence or non-harming. It can also be thought of kind of as like a, a, a dynamic compassion or an active compassion. And I've been very drawn to the Jain religion for because of this concept and others. While I've been studying all three of the Dharma traditions, Jainism really stands out for me, though, because it, it it just it really resonates with me, resonates with how I already arranged my thinking and my ethics. So it just kind of naturally connected. And it's such a rich philosophy that makes me think deeper about the world, about being human in the world, how we can advance compassionately and spiritually as a society. It's it's really, really a fantastic tradition and system. So our guest, Chris Miller, teaches at a new online Jain school called Arihanta Academy, and we'll be talking about that college more in the interview, but I will be teaching a class there as well called Ahimsa, Animal Advocacy, and Veganism. I'm really excited about teaching this course. It will be starting on Saturday, September 24th, and then ongoing for six Saturdays after that, two-hour classes. Uh, each Saturday, and it's open for anyone to enroll. So I really hope that maybe after hearing Chris, hearing more about the Jane philosophy, you might be interested in taking my class. It really is going to be a, a deep dive, an in-depth dive into veganism mostly, with each class focusing on a different aspect of veganism, and then how animal protection and planet protection connects to Jane Dharma and concepts within that tradition like Ahimsa, I feel like I have some important and hopefully interesting information to share. So I hope you'll consider taking my class. Okay, let's hear more about Jane Dharma and this wonderful new online Jane school. Okay, today we have with us Christopher Jane Miller. He is the co-founder and vice president of academic affairs of Arihanta Academy, and that is a Jain Dharma college. He completed his PhD in the study of religion at the University of California, Davis, and his current research focuses on applied Jain Dharma and the ways by which Jain principles can be lived in daily life. Chris is the author of a number of articles and book chapters concerned with Jain Dharma, Jain veganism, the history and practice of modern yoga, yoga philosophy. He lectures internationally on Jain and yoga topics, and he is the academic Academic advisor for the Global Jane Vegan Initiative. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you so much, Hope. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so glad we're doing this. We've uh, talked about this for a while. I think we were going to do this last year even, and now we're finally getting around to it. 
for a wonderful reason that we'll get into, but that is we are both going to be teaching at Arihanta Academy this coming uh, semester. And uh, I've talked a little about it on the podcast that I'm going to be teaching this class and you are the uh, co-founder of Arihanta Academy and will be teaching as well. So uh, very excited to be part of the Arihanta family now. First, let's get to know you. So I want to know why and when you went vegan. Uh, We love to start off with the guest's vegan origin story. So why don't you tell me about why and when you went vegan? I know it was fairly recently, right? Yeah, it was fairly recently back in 2019. Yeah. And I really, you know, had a conversion moment. And just like with religion, I had a conversion to being vegan. I was studying Jain philosophy and history and anthropology during the summer while I was in Switzerland, where I live, and I was preparing a course for the upcoming fall. So this is back in the summer of 2019. I spent that whole summer studying these Jain principles, ahimsa, nonviolence, and so forth. I was already vegetarian and I was vegetarian already for the same reason I think that people become vegan. They don't want to do harm to animals. Mm. And I had been vegetarian for a while and I had been vegetarian because of my study of both Jainism, my practice of yoga and other things, spiritual things like this. So it was really kind of spiritually and, and ethically motivated through these principles, particularly ahimsa. As I was going through that summer of 2019, the Jain community, the Jain vegans community, I should call it, they're called the Jain vegans in the UK, were having an event, a very important annual event that they do every year, which is called Give Up Dairy for Paryushan. Paryushan is a festival uh, celebration, really, every year that all Jains basically participate in, where they look back at all that they, the harm that they've caused for the past year, all of the harms that they've committed to other people, as well as to all living beings. And they ask for forgiveness. And they also practice austerity. They fast and they give up certain things during this eight or 10 day period, depending which tradition you're in, in order to kind of make up for the pain that they've caused. What I loved about the Jane's vegan initiative that they were doing, this give up dairy for Paryushan initiative, is that they were asking all Jains to give up dairy rather than fasting, rather than doing other things. They were saying, why don't you just give up dairy during Paryushan, during this festival, to kind of reflect on the harm of the dairy industry. Mm. And in doing that, they educated the Jain community, the global Jain community online through social media and whatnot about the harms that we all know go into dairy. And so I was watching this after this whole summer of studying Jane principles, studying nonviolence. And I had this moment where I had to say to myself suddenly, I, how can I teach these Jane principles and teach nonviolence in the classroom, in this class that I've been preparing for with any integrity, unless I'm willing to admit that it's time for me to take this step to give up the dairy, to ditch mm-hmm. the dairy basically. And of course, being in Switzerland, dairy is a huge thing. There's lots of milk chocolate. There's lots of really famous cheeses and things. It's a very big part of the culture. But I remember on on August 5th, the the day that I finally decided this is what I'm going to do, I stopped uh, eating dairy and, and of course, eggs and everything else. And that was at the time that I became vegan. And it was really, I have to attribute it to this sort of conversion moment that I had as I was studying these Jane principles so carefully that basically say that no animal, no being wants to be hurt. And for that reason, we should do everything we can to reduce the harm that we inflict on all living beings. And this included, of course, for, foremost for Jane's and for, for those who are already vegetarian uh, to give up dairy. And so that was when I became vegan back in 2019. So it's been almost three years now. And I'm very, very happy. And I've learned so much and I continue to learn uh, about the vegan world and veganism since that time. So Chris, you now teach Jain Dharma. What drew you to the Jain tradition? Did you, did you grow up in a religious household or, or how did that all unfold? It's kind of a long story, but I'll try not to uh, take up too much space with it. 
but yes, I did grow up in a religious household. I grew up in a Catholic household. Oh, um, uh-huh. You know, I learned some of the the ways to treat one another, uh, to treat other humans, and that we should respect our neighbors and love our neighbors. So I learned a lot growing up as a as a Catholic. There were certain questions I always had growing up, however, about the way that we interact with the world that the tradition simply couldn't answer for me. And so I was on a little bit of a quest throughout my teenage years and throughout my 20s, trying to find spiritual traditions that were aligned with the idea that all of reality matters, all beings matter. Mm. And when I was an undergraduate, in an undergraduate course on these Dharma traditions exactly, it was the first time I was exposed to this, this tradition of Jainism. And the fundamental principle in this tradition is ahimsa, it's nonviolence or non-harming, to not harm anything to the best of your ability. We're learning about this in class, in my undergraduate class, and we were asked to write a paper reflecting on the principle of ahimsa. And I remember I was sitting at my desk, just as I am right now, at my computer, just as I am right now. I was writing this paper, just reflecting on how I could incorporate it into my own daily life. And I had this amazing, this was an amazing conversion moment as well. There was a spider going across the wall on uh, just above my computer. And I reached back to smack the spider with a, with a newspaper or some paper or something. I remember I grabbed some paper and just before I killed the spider, I stopped and I said, wait a minute, I'm being asked to reflect on nonviolence. I'm being asked to reflect on the idea that nothing wants to experience harm and that nothing wants to die and on compassion. And I stopped. And for the first time in my life, I realized that this spider wants to live. It doesn't want to die. It doesn't want to feel pain. And I remember I took it outside in a cup and I let it go. And that was my first kind of moment where I realized what the Jain tradition was trying to teach. It was like a very basic lesson of empathy, but the way that it really dug into me beyond an intellectual level into my heart was reflecting on it with this real life moment of this spider. And that moment planted a seed in me that gave me deep respect for the tradition that would later grow into me later going into graduate school and studying these things uh, in graduate school and eventually teaching the tradition. So that was the seed. And then it kind of grew from there. And the love for this tradition continues to grow and grow for that reason. Mm. Wow. Well, I can relate. Uh, I was raised uh, Christian as well, though uh, mine was Southern Baptist, born again, Christian. It just never quite, like you said, answered my questions or, or fulfilled what I saw as the whole world being worthy of compassion and protection. And yeah, I, I too grew out, uh, well, I don't want to say grow out of, but uh, grew in a different direction, we'll say. And the Eastern traditions called to me so much more, and in particular, Jainism. That's exactly right. And one of the things I learned about the tradition as I studied it, I studied the topic of Jainism and ecology, Jainism and animals and things like this. And what you realize is that it kind of decenters the human as the, even though the human is important, according to these prints, to this tradition, it decenters the human as being the only important thing and the only thing deserving of love and compassion and, and nonviolence. And yeah. that was what I needed because I was born in 1981. So I'm dating myself here, right? I'm 41 now. And I remember from a young age wanting to know like, where does our trash go? Before, you know, before I started asking animal, about questions about animals, I started asking questions to myself I remember when I was like five years old thinking, where does all this stuff go? What, what are we doing with all this? And why isn't there uh, some principles to help us think about the way that we consume just in general, the way we treat the environment? And it, it took a long time. It took all the way until I was in college to kind of see that there are alternative perspectives and the Jane perspective, particularly that looks at this world as an interconnected web of life. And when we do one thing, to something in this environment or in this web of life, it affects everything else. It's an ecology in a way. One really kind of outstanding example of this is the story of Mahavira, who is the 24th of 24 founders. He was a contemporary of the Buddha. Okay, so when we talk about Buddhism, this was uh, someone who lived at the same time as the Buddha, most likely. Mahavira, like the Buddha, he eventually renounced his worldly life and he went on the path towards spiritual liberation and enlightenment. 
And when he was on that path, he was out meditating in the forest one day. And what I love about this story about Mahavira meditating in the forest is that he was meditating with his eyes open. And we so often think about meditation, people are meditating with their eyes closed, focusing on their inner self, their breath. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but that's how we typically think about meditation. But here, Mahavira was actually very carefully observing everything around him in the forest. And what happened as a result of this, he has this profound insight that I think a lot of people have all around the world, especially people who become vegan. And this is why I think Jainism and veganism are so aligned. He had this profound yet simple insight, which was everything around me from the smallest speck of dust all the way up to the animals and plants and everything is full of life. There's life everywhere. And critically, nothing wants to experience pain and nothing wants to die. And from that fundamental insight that he had as a human being, very deep, but but simple insight, he made the commitment and said that the true spiritual path involves committing oneself to perfecting nonviolence, to not cause harm to anything, to the best of our ability, and to not allow other people to perform harm on our behalf. So the butcher or the dairy farmer, whoever, And not to allow harm to go on around us structurally. You know, if we see harm, we know something's going on. We have to say something about it. We have to do something about it. Mm. And so Mahavira out in the forest has this extremely profound insight during his meditation prior to his liberation that became one of the foundational teachings that is still taught throughout the Jain tradition today, which is ahimsa, non-harming. Let us not cause any harm to animals and let us not cause any harm to the environment. Now, of course, There's always the recognition in the Jain tradition that we do have to cause some minimal harm in order to survive, in order to live as humans, but we should do our utmost to reduce it. And of course, we know that veganism for both environmental slash climate reasons, as well as the harm that it causes to animals and even to our health, to to not be vegan is what I'm saying, would would cause harm to all of those things, to to animals, environment, climate, and, and our health. This is, a, this is a sort of ancient insight, and uh, veganism is not written into ancient Jainism. They were typically vegetarian, but it has become a fundamental insight to this day that has led to many Jains now transitioning themselves from vegetarianism to veganism, interestingly, such as the Jain vegans that I mentioned. Yeah. So let's talk a little more about that connection between Jainism and veganism and, and also Ahimsa, because so many vegans are drawn to this word, this concept of ahimsa, uh, without even really knowing much about it. I mean, we know that it's a Sanskrit term. It translates as non-violence or non-harming, but there's so much more to it. It's, It's so much deeper than that. And I think that as vegans, we recognize that. We see something in this that just doesn't translate into English, that, that there is really no concept like this in English. And so we're very drawn to it. So I, I'd love to know more about the work you do in this area, about the connection between uh, Jainism and veganism. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating connection because as I was saying before, most Jains, historically, they were vegetarian, right? And that was enough maybe in ancient India to just be vegetarian compared to the way things are today with animal agriculture, industrial animal agriculture, and these kinds of things, right? The reason that veganism makes sense for Jainism is that according to Jains, the goal in life, as it is with the other Indic traditions as well, like Buddhism and Jainism, is to eliminate all of our karma. And we acquire karma in the Jain tradition whenever we cause harm to anything, whenever we cause pain to anything, especially, especially, most especially when that pain is known, when we know we're inflicting pain on something, that's not good for our spiritual advancement. It's not good for our soul. And in order to liberate our soul from this this constant cycle of death and rebirth and reincarnation and suffering, which by the way, you can be reborn as an animal, right? Uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. Non-human animal, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. This is a never-ending cycle. In order to end that cycle of suffering and to release our soul from that, we have to minimize the violence in order to get rid of the karma that, that we accrue when we, when we cause violence. And so th- that's why it makes sense for Jains to now be turning toward veganism, but why vegans are also really drawn towards Jainism and towards ahimsa and 
one of the things that I that I recall as we're answering this question that I'm remembering is that Jay Dincha was a Jain and he was the founder of the American Vegan Society. Yeah. Right. So Ahimsa kind of enters in a major way into the vegan world, I think, through Jay Dincha's work in 1960 when he founded the American Vegan Society, of course, after Donald Watson had founded the, the, the Vegan Society in, I think it was 1944 or, or so when he started talking about veganism. But this concept is so profound because it requires one to not only just commit oneself to non-harming, but it requires one to let themselves feel compassion, let themselves feel what it would mean to be tortured in animal agriculture, to let themselves feel what it would be like to be on a slaughterhouse floor, to let themselves feel, even if they're not there, you know, we, there are images of it, we see images of it. And if you turn your head away, there's a fundamental aspect of the human experience that Jainism is saying that we are missing mm-hmm. there, right? Because it's that feeling of compassion and empathy and, and for what that would be like that should move us then to, to the commitment to non-harming in, in whatever way that we can. And of course, veganism is a, an extremely powerful way to do that in all ways, not only for the animals, but for the environment as well. So it, it makes sense to me that um, vegans are drawn towards this concept. And behind this concept of ahimsa is a rich and packed philosophy full of uh, deep insights about the why and the how as well, how to conduct oneself in the world uh, to, to promote ahimsa. So veganism, you could say in a way, is, is fully aligned with, with Jain principles. And I think that's why, or I think it's interesting for those who are not Jain to, to take a dive into Jain philosophy and really see what it's saying about not only its philosophy, but its mythology. Some of the stories I've been telling you about the way that uh, Jains have historically thought about animals and the, in, in their relation to the human, to the human animal. Yeah. And, you know, and, and digging a little deeper into Ahimsa, I, I've thought about this and I wonder what you think about this. So I wondered why it is that the, the ancient Jain philosophers chose to use the word Ahimsa Instead of, because I mean, you know, ahimsa means nonviolence, but there is a word in Sanskrit for compassion, karuna. So why is it they didn't choose compassion as the highest principle? At first, it didn't make sense to me. Like, wouldn't you say compassion is the highest principle, right? But thinking it through, I think it's similar to why we as animal advocates use the word vegan. I think that the ancient Jain philosophers were thinking deeply about this. And I think that you can say you're compassionate. You can say that you're a compassionate person, but still do harm, still eat animals, still buy products that harm animals and harm the planet. In fact, many people who eat animal products consider themselves animal lovers or environmentalists. They say they are compassionate people, but still their actions don't align. I think that that's the reason why animal advocates don't just say, be a compassionate person. You know, that's not our message. Our message is to be vegan, right? It's an action because being vegan, you're actively avoiding animal products, actively avoiding causing harm. Same with ahimsa, nonviolence. It's an action to be nonviolent. It's, it's, it's clear. It's uh, having nonviolence in your words, in your thoughts, you know, in what you do, in your actions. It goes beyond just being compassionate. It's taking action. And I think that's why they chose to use the word ahimsa. That's, that's pretty spot on, Hope. And uh, perhaps you were reborn from before as a Jane theologian. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. I, I, I love the way that you frame that. So yes, yeah, so Ahimsa was very functional as the highest principle, because according to Jane philosophy, again, whenever you commit any violence, that attracts bad karma, we can call it bad karma to your soul, that will have implications for you in the future that will you'll have to experience. So if you harm something, it's the old saying, what goes around comes around. The idea here is that you want to eliminate all violence for your own spiritual welfare. So what you're really doing 
with the concept of ahimsa is you're liberating the world from yourself. You're liberating the world from you, right? So it, it yeah, it requires, you're, you're basically liberating the animals from yourself. You're liberating everything from, from experiencing pain from yourself. With regard to compassion, not being therefore the highest principle and ahimsa being this more, as you say, action or maybe inaction oriented way of being in the world, because you really have to not do any action in the end in the Jain tradition to, to perfect ahimsa, because every action we do, even breathing, causes some minimal violence to even microorganisms, right? right? So according to the Jain tradition, compassion is important. And compassion actually, interestingly, depending on which Jain text you're reading, tends to attract good karma to your soul, right? So when you do a compassionate act with the feeling of compassion and love, that feeling brings good karma. Now, one of the really critical insights that the Jain tradition has, and I think you picked up on this in your example, is that we have to really interrogate the idea of compassion because we can say I'm a compassionate person and maybe we are compassionate towards you know, our family or our friends or other people. But we really have to interrogate compassion because according to the Jain tradition, in the end, compassion, we must even renounce compassion in the end because we don't want to get attached to the idea of being compassionate, if that makes sense. So it's an important fundamental practice in, in spiritual life, according to the Jain tradition, you have to have compassion. You have to have karuna, as you're saying, uh, the Sanskrit word, or jivdaya is another word for compassionate, yeah. for compassion. You have to have that. It's a prerequisite kind of insight that you must have. And then towards the end, when you're getting towards liberation, you have to even eventually relinquish attachment to the feeling of compassion. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter anymore, but you have to kind of detach yourself. And the reason for that is, is, is that if we think we're compassionate, then we might still be missing something. And the example you gave is good. Some people consider themselves compassionate or we consider certain people compassionate, but they haven't interrogated the true meaning of what that actually means and how that might actually extend to all of the animal world, for example, right? Yeah. And so the idea here is compassion must be part of the spiritual path. It must commit you to non-harming, ahimsa, the highest principle in the Jain tradition. And then eventually you have to relinquish attachment even to the idea of being compassionate. But by that point, according to this tradition, you don't need it anymore. Your knowledge has been so perfected through your spiritual practice, through a very dedicated spiritual life, that non-harming just becomes the kind of final principle out of all that was, that was fed the seed through this idea of compassion. But eventually the compassion even has to fall away or the attachment to the idea of compassion. It's a very... Um, it's a very Indic way of, of thinking about emotions. Yeah, but this is this is very advanced. So this is many lifetimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. But I'll say this, before any of us reach that, right, which will, according to Jane tradition, could be thousands of years from now, before any other human reaches that point where they can relinquish compassion, we have to have compassion. We have to allow ourselves to experience that because it's only through that that we can even take that step towards non-harming and, and veganism, of course, is again, a major way to be able to, to practice that as you're saying. Yeah. So we have the vegan community very drawn to ahimsa, very drawn to Jainism, uh, a portion of the vegan community. And, uh, you know, and you'll even see the word ahimsa on t-shirts at veg fests and necklaces and uh, it's, it's, I think it's really beautiful that we're as, as animal advocates, we recognize this beautiful, uh, just um, extreme nonviolence. And I, and I use the word extreme. I, I don't like using the word extreme because oftentimes it has negative connotations, but I mean, in the good way, you know, extremely compassionate, extremely empathetic. So we recognize that as a vegan community. And on the flip side, I know that a lot of Jains are also recognizing the importance of veganism and turning towards uh, veganism. So can you tell us why the Jains are now drawn to veganism and, and your experience with that? And maybe a bit about their own historical commitment to vegetarianism. Uh, you've talked a little bit about that, but if you want to uh, talk a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So Jains, as I mentioned before, have been his historically committed to vegetarianism. This is, of course, before 
we have this mass ag animal agriculture that we see everywhere that the vegan community is so uh, dedicated to, to highlighting and detaching itself from. Uh, so Jane's would historically consume dairy and historically they have been seen as the torchbearers among even all Indic traditions of nonviolence. Hinduism also promotes ahimsa. Let's not forget that Buddhism in its own way does as well. So it's not just the Jain tradition that promotes ahimsa, but the Jain tradition promotes it more so and has, has more of a lifestyle built around committing itself to ahimsa than any of the other traditions, right? And so yeah. uh, vegetarianism, which is also a part of, of Hinduism and is also some, sometimes a part of Buddhism, has been there for a very long time and is actually for, for a very long time since, since the ancient Greeks were in India, has even inspired uh, Westerners to commit themselves to a diet of non-harming, which at the time was vegetarianism, which was enough back then uh, compared to now, let's just say. Yeah. Um, but now we know, you know, again, with dairy and everything, that, that there's a problem. Now, this is what I love about the Jain community and what I love researching and what some of the stuff that I actually write about and publish about, which is that a lot of Jains today who remain primarily vegetarian, particularly young Jains, but also Jains that are older, have started to see in the vegan tradition a new opportunity to do everything that we've been talking about here, which is to practice their nonviolence, their non-harming, their ahimsa in a better, more advanced way. And so they're careful. And this is another thing I love. They're careful because they have such an intricate philosophy, such an intricate way of life. There's so many other rules and, and ways of living that Jains incorporate into their life to not cause harm. But they always find opportunities outside of the tradition to then incorporate into their own tradition that allow them to practice nonviolence better. And veganism is one of those opportunities. As you mentioned at the beginning in my bio, I'm the academic advisor for the Jane Vegan Initiative, which was started by Sunny Jane. You can find it on Instagram, the Jane Vegan Initiative, if you want to look for it. Started by Sunny Jane. And he started to try to point out to Janes that, look, we have a new opportunity to do better, and it's in veganism. And guess what? When they talk about the why, they always foreground it with, we are Janes, we are committed to compassion, we are committed to nonviolence. But when they give the actual reasons for going vegan, they're drawing from all of the, the arguments, all of the discourse that we find in the sort of global and transnational context. Hmm. All the reasons we know about the way that mother cows are treated, the way that their young are treated and taken and killed, and the way that it harms the environment. And just, just to be clear for Janes, they tend to not eat eggs already. And so That's we're really right. just talking about dairy here. The Janes are using the same kind of discourse to describe, and, and they also talk about health and other things for why they should become vegan. And in fact, they just, the young Janes of America just held their semi-annual or biannual conference in Dallas, and they committed for the first time their entire conference to be vegan, not vegetarian, but vegan. And so the Janes, the Janes are really, really, really turned on. And this is what I appreciate about them. Other traditions, other cultural practices that aren't necessarily their own, in which they see an opportunity for themselves to do better. And so they, in a way, have taken veganism and made it their own. And that's why we like to call it the Jane Vegan Initiative, because it's a very Jane-inflected form of veganism. They still maintain their dietary practices that they would for, for special events, for daily life. They do posts about things like, here's how you can make chai, which people in India and Jains love, but here's how you can make it in a vegan way. And they, so they do these kinds of posts all the time to say, we don't have to give up our tradition. We can just make our tradition less violent and even make it taste better. That's kind of their thing. And, and I, I really appreciate that about them. And they're the Jains are careful not to proselytize too hard outside of their tradition. It's really an internal movement that's really focused on getting its own community to see why, if we are the global torchbearers of nonviolence, then, then we have to step up and we have to turn to veganism and incorporate it into, into our tradition. So they do that also with environmentalism. Jains see a lot of hope in the environmental movement more broadly for all different kinds of issues, climate change and all these things. And veganism also, of course, serves into that. But Jains are always looking outside 
and seeing and, and and really appreciating the work that people do towards nonviolence in the in the vegan within the what we call the transnational vegan movement. But Jane's see nonviolence; they see a reflection of themselves in that, and I love that so much. Yeah. So I think another reason that uh, Janes are kind of drawn to veganism and and vegans is around taking vows, right? Because as a vegan, we're basically taking a vow not to eat, wear, or use animal products. And this is very recognizable for someone in an Eastern tradition, because of course they take vows for spiritual growth on numerous, you know, there's numerous different vows. They take vows of sobriety or vows to fast on certain days, things like that. And of course there's the vow of vegetarianism that we were just talking about. So veganism seems just like a natural extension of this vow. So there's, you know, a deep connection there. And I think spiritual people recognize, they recognize vegans taking this vow, taking a personal stand. And I think this is where it gets a little interesting, kind of into interesting territory with vegans, because we take this vow very seriously to the point where some, some vegans will, most vegans really will get to the point where they don't want to eat anything that's been like grilled on the same grill as meat. Or, or, or cut with the same knife. Like you don't want to eat vegan food that's been cut with the same knife that was that that meat was cut with. And and of course there there's an ick factor. I mean it is gross that you know there's that. But I think there's more going on here. I think that these instances where there's really not an economic or practical reason not to eat that food, that burger that was grilled with other meat. I mean, you're still supporting a plant-based burger. It just happened to be grilled where there was meat. So I think that this is where it gets into more subtlety and more spiritual, a more spiritual aspect when you've taken this vow so strongly, so deeply that it goes beyond just an economic boycott. We're on a spiritual level now. Like we want to keep, you know, I want to keep myself clean of the suffering, clean of the energy of suffering. Right. So I think that the vow thing is kind of an interesting connection too between the two communities. Yeah. I love that you brought up the word vow here to describe all of this because the word vow in Sanskrit is vrata. Mm. And ahimsa is the first and highest of these vows or vratas that Jains take, that Hindus take, that Buddhists take, and that yogis take. They're known as the yamas in the Yoga sutras, in the yeah. yoga, yeah, yeah, Patanjali Yoga Sutra, yep. you're known as the Yamas. And the, the, the etymologies of these two words are really fascinating. So the word vrata for vow comes from the verbal root that means to choose. And you're making a choice. You're, you're, and this is what vegans do. And this is what uh, Jains do when they're making their vow to not eat anything that comes from animals or wear or whatever, anything that comes from animals. It's a conscious choice that is embedded in an extreme sensitivity and commitment to compassion and nonviolence, right? So I, I just love that it's a, it's a choice. And it, it also goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning that humans have this capacity to choose. And that's exactly what a vrata is. It's, it's a choice to modify our behavior based on what science tells us, based on what our compassion tells us about what it means to, to consume anything that comes from an animal. We have a choice and we should make the choice that is moral and make the choice that really does the most good for the most number of beings in terms of reducing the violence. And then the verb yum, which is funny because it sounds like we're going to eat something yummy, right? <laughs> uh, uh, the verbal root yum is where, the, where yama comes from, which is, which is these, um, these moral restraints. And the first of them is again, ahimsa in the yoga tradition. So the verbal root yum literally means to restrain oneself, to hold yourself back. And so the vrata that is a yama is a choice to hold oneself back from doing something in particular that causes harm. Mm -hmm. and, and it really is embedded in this idea that humans can make that choice. And so can animals to a certain extent in the Jain tradition, but humans have the highest capacity to do that. And that's really what it means to be born as a human is to have that fundamental insight that you do have a choice. Yeah. And the choice for ahimsa is clearly veganism. 
Yeah. And I really see it as a responsibility, you know, being human, the, the Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. So <laughs> absolutely. 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 Yeah. And this would, in all of these traditions, we're calling them Dharma traditions, right? This word Dharma can mean a lot of things, but it essentially is it's implicated in this in that it, it means we're doing the thing that we're supposed to do the right thing. Like you're saying, <laughs> taking responsibility for, for, for our actions and for the world. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, Chris, I want to talk about Arihanta Academy, and this is a new online Jane college that uh, you have co-founded and that you have been very involved in, and you're, you are teaching classes as well. My husband, Kojin Bohanik, who's been on the podcast a couple times, is also uh, teaching there. He is a professor at Arihanta Academy as well. And I will actually be teaching a class called Ahimsa Animal Advocacy and Veganism. I'm very, very excited to be contributing to this uh, amazing uh, academic endeavor. So tell us about Arihanta Academy. I'd love to. <laughs> yes, Arihanta Academy, we, we're an online educational platform seeking to have university accreditation soon. We're working with universities to offer courses eventually. And right now, and what we'll continue to do in the future, and our main goal was to really democratize Jane studies, everything we've been talking about here, for everyone. Because right now, if you want to study the Jane tradition, you have to be either lucky like me and accidentally stumble upon it in an undergraduate class. Mm. Maybe it was karma, who knows? Um, <laughs> or you have to you have to travel far and you have to go, generally speaking, enroll in a university course somewhere and ha have it taught to you. What we're really trying to do at Arihanta Academy is create an online institution where anyone from around the world, and we're already doing this, come and take courses with us in particular topics that relate to Jane philosophy and allied fields of inquiry, including animal studies, critical animal studies, environmental studies, and other things. And what we want to do is make the world a less violent and more uh, compassionate place. I mean, that's really, really our kind of underlying goal here is to give people the opportunity to have these moments during studying and during reflecting on these principles so that they too can be transformed and, and have these, these, these fundamental Jane insights, right? We don't want them to become Jane. We're not trying to convert people to the Jane tradition. We're just trying to give them an opportunity to study Jane principles and the things that align with Jane principles. And in fact, a little over a year ago, when the three co-founders, initial co-founders came together, my friend here in Switzerland, Danesh Kotari, who's our, our tech guru, and Parveen Jane, who's the president, when the three of us came together, uh, we realized, first of all, that we were all vegan. And that this was really also one of the driving forces of what we wanted to do with this platform is help people see why veganism is the answer to a lot of things, not everything, but, but a lot of things. And we wanted to educate the general public on why that is. And so we're starting to offer courses in the fall and specifically yours. And I'm really excited about your course, Ahimsa, Animal Advocacy and Veganism, because we want to make the ideas of the animal advocacy movement of veganism and the Jane tradition all kind of come together in the classroom online and help people understand from environmental perspectives as well, in addition to animal rights and human health and all the different reasons why it's, it's, it's an important choice in light of Jane principles as well to become vegan. And so I'll also be teaching a course. I, we also teach yoga studies there. One of the other fields that I do research in is yoga studies. And so I'll be teaching a course on modern yoga. And we have a whole uh, array of courses. People can go to arihanta-academy.com and uh, see our fall offerings there and enroll in a course. It doesn't cost much. It, we make them affordable. We are a nonprofit educational institution. And so our idea here is to make these as affordable and as accessible to, to everyone so that they can join us and, and learn and learn the things and the principles that they want to learn. And which classes are you teaching? I'm going to be teaching a course called Modern Yoga Studies, mm. Critical History, Anthropology, and Methodology, which is a very um, directed course at looking at modern yoga culture in all of its various 
uh, ways, social justice perspectives in terms of racism, in terms of uh, colonialism. And this time, the first time since I've started teaching this class, the fifth time I'm going to be teaching it, I've incorporated an entire section on yoga and animals because, as we know, most people in modern yoga culture, and the vast majority, I should say, are not vegan and not even vegetarian. So we're really trying through every course to kind of plug this in to show people uh, within the various cultures and, and, and demographics that we teach why it's important. Yeah. Yeah. The modern yoga movement is a, is a gateway drug. So we want to get them in <laughs> to <laughs> the true philosophy, the real stuff, uh, which is the good stuff of yoga philosophy and uh, veganism and ahimsa. So good. that's right. That's right. Yeah. It's kind of a, the postural yoga class gets you on the mat and yes. if people are interested in learning beyond the mat, which there's a lot, the mat is also important, but there is also a lot beyond the mat that, that is not learned. And uh, these, these fundamental principles we've been talking about today from the Jain tradition have actually contributed to the yoga tradition. So in a way, you'll also be studying some Jain philosophy in this course. Great. Wow. Well, I am so thrilled that this academy has uh, come to life and that it is existing. And we will put a link in the show notes to the academy itself and to my class and to Chris's classes. So you can see what all we're offering. And I could link also maybe to Kojin's class as well. I'm not exactly sure what he's teaching, but I know that he's been teaching uh, Jane philosophy courses, Jane ethics courses. Uh, so there's a lot of amazing offerings. I mean, you have numerous classes, at least a dozen, I think at a time, right? That's right. So what we do every term is we have a certain number of courses that are live, such as your course and my course, where people come and meet on a weekly scheduled basis for a certain number of weeks. And then we also have a growing list of pre-recorded courses that are also available. So if people are more interested in kind of studying at their own pace, they can watch courses on our learning platform that have already been taught. And eventually your course and my course and all these other courses will fall into that self-study category. So if people are unable to enroll right away, these courses will be available on the website for people to do as a kind of self-study, as a resource for this teaching. We don't want to lose the, the great value that all the and effort all the professors are putting into these courses. So, so give or take, we probably have about 10 new courses per term. It uh, depends which term. And uh, all the terms before are accumulating now so that people can go in and take self-study courses. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Cause you know, Saturday may not be good for you or every one of those Saturdays might not you know, work. You've got other things. So being able to do it at your own, on your own time. That's great. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So Chris, I want to ask you something that's just kind of random, uh, but at the beginning you mentioned, cause I know you live in Switzerland and you mentioned that it's very dairy heavy. In, in Switzerland, a lot of milk chocolate and cheese and things like that. I know that a lot of Europe is having just a vegan wave that there's just, you know, veganism is, is just growing there. Uh, so I'm curious if that is happening in Switzerland, if you're seeing that in Switzerland or maybe not as much. You know, when I moved here, I was thrilled and I've been coming here for years, but when I finally moved here, I was thrilled because Vegan products had started to enter the shelves in the regular grocery stores on a more regular basis. It was easier to find everything from tofu to even, you know, plant-based meats that everybody could eat here to replace what they're doing. And I am seeing there's a, there's a vegan festival in Zurich coming up nearby where I live next month. There's, there just was one in Luzerne. There are companies, lots of companies and startups here in Switzerland that are creating new vegan products, as well as opportunities for people to invest in vegan companies, as well as companies that are creating apps that help you find vegan food in Swiss stores. I'm absolutely just overwhelmed by how fast it, it is growing here. Today on the bus, I saw that they were starting to advertise the amount of resources that go into producing meat in Switzerland. And so that was in German. I was thrilled to see that they're starting to show that in public transportation. And also 
there are animal groups here. Uh, there, are, there are groups that study animal rights and critical animal studies at the universities. So there is a lot of great momentum. And I think really in, in Europe in general, I'm seeing a lot of momentum with the International Panel on Climate Change, which has recently met in Germany, who basically said the whole world has to be veganized in order for uh, us to you know, avoid the worst of climate change. Wow. I see people listening to this. I see the Swiss government listening to this. I see, the, I see think tanks in Switzerland predicting that by 2050, there will be no more meat in Switzerland. I've seen this in the mainstream news. Wow. Uh, so I am very, very hopeful that, that things are moving in the right direction and we can continue to, to advocate the way we are until we meet, reach the right critical mass where this just becomes a normal thing. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. It's global, global shift. Fantastic. So something else I'm curious about is the another Jane concept. We've talked about ahimsa, and I also love the concept of parigraha, which uh, translates to kind of like non-consumption, not consuming. And I think this one really applies to, of course, the environmental crisis that we're in because most every environmental issue we have is, a, is about consumption. It's about taking, it's about, you know, taking too much or, or taking in a way that's harmful. So I wonder if you want to talk about a parigraha. Absolutely. So there are five vows. Ahimsa is the first of those vows that we've been talking about. And the fifth of those vows is a parigraha. And it's shared both in the Jain community, again, as well as in Hinduism and yoga. And it means just that it means not literally translates as non-possession or even like you said, non-consumption and the verbal root parigra means to grasp around. It literally means you're grasping around things and trying to make them yours. Taking, taking. taking yes. Yeah. You, so you go in on black Friday and you wrap your arms around, you grasp at everything you can get your arms around, <laughs> right? It's exactly, it's pointing towards exactly that kind of human compulsion to consume, yeah. um, whether that's on black Friday or if it's on, uh, you know, uh, Amazon or whatever here in Switzerland, it's Galaxus. It's this compulsion to, yeah, it's, it's calling and it's telling us not to do that. It's telling us the uh that's in that word of a parigraha means don't because it's seen as spiritually unbeneficial, non-beneficial when we center our lives around consuming things and our attachment to consuming things. And it also, of course, is intended, as all the other vows are, to support the vow of nonviolence. It's trying to show us that what we consume has violent implications or the extent to which we consume and the things that we consume have potentially violent outcomes and implications, which is of course bad for us spiritually as well as bad because it actually causes harm to, to, to the planet, to the climate, as well as to animals and other living beings. Yeah. And so aparigraha is this idea that we should always try to consume the minimal amount of things that we need to, to have a, a, a life, right? We have to support our life. We need a place to live. We need to eat. We need to have a few basic things. Uh, we need a bed, perhaps, whatever. But it's to not hoard. It's to not fill yourself with things because those things are actually distracting you from your true nature and who you actually really are, your higher self. And, and they distract you from just enjoying the simplicity of life. And there's, a there's another very important uh, ethical principle called santosha, which means contentment in the, in the this is in the um, yogic tradition, wherein you should just be content. It means content, be content with what you have and all those things you want to just click and buy. Uh, it's not going to be spiritually beneficial for you because the things that you own end up owning you. If you own a car, a really nice car, for example, but if you buy the really nice sports car, it's eventually going to get damaged and then you're going to suffer. So it's for all these reasons, the things that we own, own us, and they actually end up causing us suffering because they don't last forever. And neither does the feeling that they give us that hit that they give us when we, when we consume them. So instead of that, and I think what neurobiology is also showing us, it's that um, we should be content and not always try to reproduce pleasure through consumption. Yeah buying stuff and consuming stuff is not 
the source of happiness. It's not what gives, even though we think it's going to give us happiness and it might, it might temporarily give us happiness. It's certainly not the source of long-term or deep or true happiness. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I yeah. That's that. right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I love how the tradition teaches us this and shows us, like you said, that we can find happiness in simplicity and in uh, nature and in relationships. And uh, these things are, are much, much more important than the consumptive habits that we seem to have in the Western, uh, Western world. It's just gotten out of control and look what we've done. I mean, the climate, the, the environment is suffering because of our taking our grasping our parigraha. <laughs> exactly. Now you're a Sanskrit scholar after this. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, Chris, this has been wonderful. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you about all this, uh, but we do need to wrap up. And I like to end the podcast uh, with this question. What gives you hope for the future? I love this question. And I also am always scared to answer it because it's so scary what's happening right now in the world, particularly with animals and with the climate looking at, yeah, looking at what, what we're going to face in terms of biodiversity loss and all of these things. But at the same time, and, and also all the other injustices that are happening all around the world right now, um, in the way that people are increasingly being subject to hate and all this, there's a lot going on right now. And I always have to kind of acknowledge that up front. Yeah. But, you know, throughout history, humans have always had the capacity to open themselves up, open their hearts up to love to open their hearts up to compassion, to really listen deeply and to, to change their ways, right? We, and we know this is possible. And we know this is possible because we're seeing it happen right now with a lot of the things I described before, such as the way that I'm seeing this wave of veganism becoming mainstream, for example, in Europe. And through education, when I see my students have these awakening kind of aha moments when they're studying on their own. And then they come into the classroom and they're like, Oh my gosh, I realized this when I was reading this text or through these, these educational aha moments, I think that humanity can change and we know we have to, we know we have to adapt and we know we have to do better. The fact that it has happened before tells me that it can happen again and that we can also bring it to scale and that we can, all do our individual parts. And I see so many wonderful people doing so much wonderful work, including your work, Hope, the, the work of, of Kojin, my, my colleague here at Arihanta Academy, who's a wonderful professor, the, the work of so many other colleagues who are advocating for veganism within the academy, which has never happened before. That's starting yeah. to happen. I, I really see that that people are starting to to open up to this idea in a more widespread way. It, it gives me encouragement to keep doing the work in education and to keep working with wonderful people like you and to keep working with all of the the colleagues that we have who are really trying to show through science, through philosophy, through history, through all these various um, educational mediums that uh, you know, we can do better and here's how. So um, education and, and, and hard work and the fact that humans can change, that gives me hope for the future. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you and all that you're doing to bring together these uh, two just really compatible sister communities of veganism and Jane Dharma. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Hope. Jai Janendra. Jai Janendra. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. So if you found all this interesting and would like to take my class on veganism and Jainism, I would love to have you. You can enroll by going to the link in the show notes. My class is called Ahimsa, Animal Advocacy and Veganism. It starts on September 24th. I really hope to see you there. So the class is not free. It does cost $99 for the six weeks, but I have been given a coupon code for half off, and that coupon code is fall. 
2022. So F-A-L-L 2022 is the coupon code for half off for the class. If at half off it is still a challenge for you, please get in touch with me. We'll work with you. If you are connected to a vegan spiritual community, please help me spread the word. You can share this podcast episode with them. I would really appreciate that. Thank you so much for your compassion. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and please live vegan. (laughs) 